This podcast is free and it's accessible to everyone thanks to support from listeners like you. If you value this show, please consider supporting its production by donating to our home, KUOW. It only takes a minute to give and you'll be helping to support the production of this podcast. Make a donation at KUOW.org or follow the link in the show notes. And thanks. Welcome to KUOW's Speakers Forum. I'm your host, John O'Brien. In this episode, do you ever forget what you love about Seattle or become upset by the ways it is changing? As time marches on through boom and bust, relative good health and pandemic, the heart and the ghosts of this city surround us. Perhaps we lose touch sometimes. Perhaps we zone out. People who pay attention to these things as a way of life can help us tune back in. This event is a sort of celebration, meditation, and wake all in one for this place, our people, and our literary imaginations. In 2017, Seattle was named a City of Literature by UNESCO the United Nations Educational, Scientific, and Cultural Organization. The designation connects us to other cities so named around the world. The occasion was the publication of Seismic, a collection of essays and poems about literature and social change, curated by author and journalist Kristen Miaris-Young. The work was published by Seattle City of Literature, a nonprofit organization dedicated to serving Seattle's literary community by connecting it to the world. Seattle Public Library hosted this virtual gathering in partnership with Seattle City of Literature on September 15th. SPL's Stesha Brandon made the introductions. Kristen Miaris Young served as moderator. Seismic is available in free print editions from local independent bookstores and digitally on the Seattle City of Literature and the SPL website. So Seattle was designated the UNESCO City of Literature back in 2017. And since then, we've been working as part of the International Creative Cities Network. And at its most basic level, that network exists for us to learn from one another and to make each other better. And in that spirit, the idea for Seismic was actually inspired by a sister collection from our colleagues in Ljubljana, Slovenia. So Seismic asked writers to consider what does it mean to be a city of literature and and how literature might be an agent of change. And these essays were commissioned before the pandemic struck, but hold clues to how our city might move forward in the aftermath. The editor of this undertaking was the inimitable Kristen Miaris-Young, Kristen Miaris Young is the author of the novel Subduction, a Paris Review staff pick, and a finalist for two International Latino Book Awards. Kristen served as the 2018 through 2020 Prose Writer in Residence at Hugo House here in Seattle. Her personal essays, book reviews, and investigations appear in the Washington Post, Literary Hub, The Guardian, and the anthologies Latina Outsiders, High and Whiskey, Alone Together and advanced creative nonfiction. 
She was the researcher for the New York Times team that produced Snowfall, which won a Pulitzer Prize. So please help me welcome Kristen Miaris-Young, who will begin tonight's program. Hello, everyone. Thank you for being with us here tonight. I want to thank the Seattle Times, Crosscut, KUOW, The Stranger, Seattle Met, and Literary Hub for publishing excerpts of Seismic. Thanks also to Speakers Forum, Seattle Channel, and KVRU for rebroadcasting tonight's performances. So if you're watching and you really want to share it with a friend, you'll have a way to do so. As editor of Seismic, I asked artists and storytellers to reflect on what it means for Seattle to be a city of literature. While celebrating Seattle's inclusion in the UNESCO Creative Cities Network, this collection is not a commemoration. It is a call to action. How can literary culture influence social change? Seattle is a city that we love too much to lose. Now, if I had to tell you why Seattle is a literary city, I would say it is because I was able to become myself here. I learned how to hold space for my own story in this place, and that is a revolutionary act. Those who moved here, like I did, chose our fate within a seismic reckoning that I've come to see as myriad, not just geographic, but cultural, not just topographic, but economic, not just historical, but immediate. As a city of literature, we hold stories for the unborn. And what will we tell them of our time? That in a pandemic, we were asked to choose between profits and our vulnerable elderly neighbors. That death forced us to keep a social distance. That to confront and heal our racial divides, we broke, to get, broke apart or came together. Now the corporate wealth which controls public process in this city would have us believe that anything is achievable if we work harder a freelance veteran of the gig economy, I'm here to tell you that such lies are designed to divest us of our labors. We are ceding control of the narrative. To what end? Shall we tell the unborn that ours was among the first generations to listen to women and that when we spoke, it was a howl? That the earth spoke and we did not listen. We cannot answer these questions alone. Take strength in knowing that Seattle artists Writers, storytellers, literary organizers, and activists have counterparts all across the world. Together, we can own up to our, our story, our role, and the long arc of living. For the great honor of curating this collection, I would like to thank Stesha Brandon and the board members of Seattle City of Literature, who through their efforts have created a sanctuary for ideas. If the local is global and the personal is political, then we are here to take action together. We, whether newly arrived to Seattle or generations deep, are on Duwamish land, now deforested and poisoned by the hands of forebearers who strained rivers, sluiced hills, and flooded shorelines in the name of prosperity that has not been shared. It is time to honor the Treaty of Point Elliot, signed in 1855 by Chief Seattle, the great-great-great-great-grandfather of Ken Workman, whose words will close tonight's performance. Native words anchor this collection, which will open by an exhortation by Rena Priest. Their stories have lasted for millennia, and that is what UNESCO reaches for, the millennia. Not just those which have already unfurled, but those which remain for others to endure. Note the recurrences in tonight's ideas. They are intentional. What must be remembered bears repeating. Resilience is a quality that is cultivated over time, under duress, 
against the odds, and in community. To hold space for these stories is one of the greatest honors of my literary life, and gratitude for which I remain yours. So, to welcome Rena Priest. She's a National Geographic explorer and a member of the Lochtumish tribe, Lummi Nation. She's a recipient of an American Book Award and a 2020 Allied Arts Professional Poets Award. Her work can be found in For Love of Orcas, Poetry Northwest, High Country News, and elsewhere. And I came to know her because of her book, Patriarchy Blues. Please welcome her to the stage. I'd like to begin with an acknowledgement that Seattle was built on the homelands of the Duwamish, who still live here and continue the beautiful legacy of hundreds of generations of strong and resilient people. I am not Duwamish, but it's told in Lummi lore that at one time, Como Kulshin, Mount Baker, and Kwame, Mount Rainier, were married. For one reason or another, Kwame decided to leave Komokulshan and move south. Along her path, she made the islands of the Salish Sea. On a clear day, he can see her standing so tall and beautiful with the sun on her face. When she catches him looking at her, she gets mad and draws the clouds around her again. That's why it's cloudy here all the time. Full disclosure, I have never lived in Seattle. I have spent most of my life 90 miles to the north on the Lummi Reservation or in the nearby town of Bellingham, but I have been seeking the creative sanctuary of Seattle since I was a teenager. I would paint on my cat eyes and red lips and drive for 90 minutes so I could write in a different cafe and watch the rain from a different window. Seattle is the quintessential writer's city. The weather requires inventive ways to keep entertained indoors. Storytelling has always been handy. Over the past few years, I have made friends, many friends, among Seattle's writers and been honored to participate in literary events around town. Every event I attend teaches me something new, evokes feelings, brings me into contact with people who make words into power. This could be true of literary activities in any city, but it's especially true in Seattle, where story and song are an integral part of the culture. In this region, storytelling has been a way of life since time immemorial. Coast Salish people celebrate story through dances and songs, through totem poles, legends, family anecdotes, and literature. Story is a way of seeing each other and ourselves. Story is a way of surviving. Here, I must pause and acknowledge that I was about to lie to you. I wanted to give you the literary tour guide's version of Seattle. Writing about Seattle in an authentic way is difficult for me. Writing about anywhere in the Salish Sea bioregion is a challenge because in order to keep from alienating people, I have been taught by polite society never to publicly acknowledge the true story of the people who belong to this place. We don't say genocide. We don't say murdered, cheated, displaced, and starved. We don't say those things. Tell a different story. Sing the people a song. So I tell you how nice the people are in Seattle's literary community, which is certainly true, but it omits this other story. Please don't be alienated. Before English and the written word came here, in the time before the guns and smallpox and conquest, 
before children were taken from their parents to attend residential schools to become strangers to themselves and their mothers, before we signed treaties and said goodbye to our relatives on the other side of invisible borders, confining us to reservations, in the time when we were all together, the people had elaborate and rich mythologies. Then, as now, stories connected us to our world and taught us to acknowledge the sacred in others. Then, as now, the people traveled to neighboring villages to potlatch and share gifts. The people gathered to learn something new and to be in contact with others who hold words as their power. Stories of how we survive and make something good with our lives. In Hlami Chosen, Lummi language, we have a word that talks about the time when we were all together. The etymology breaks down like this. Atla, we are here. Tal, out to sea. Lnuch, people living together in a village. All this is true. We are here and we have rich mythologies. I first learned of this word in relation to our ancient flood story. An elder had a dream and told the people to build two canoes and tie them together and fill them with strong people to rebuild the nations. The floods came and when they subsided, the survivors paired off and walked in separate directions to build new villages. Before they parted, they agreed that they would always recognize each other as coming from the same village. They would be the survivors of the flood. Akhtanuk talks about the, about the people during the time before the floods. When we were still a strand interwoven with the radiance of waterways, landscapes, animals, the people and places we loved, before we were separated by the lonely belief that God plucked us out and placed us above all life on earth, removed us from our seat in the dignified living world to stand solitary and isolated by the directive, have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. Dominion is lonely. Below the waves, the unheard, unseen world sings. In the trees, the birds sing. The sun lights the earth another day. I wake to alarms in the dark. The sacred celebration of sunrise, the birds and fish singing, all of that happens as I sit in traffic, thinking of my ancestors, feeling the heaviness of grief. To tell you my true story about Seattle and literature, I must confess wonder. What new stories can we tell to return us to our old belief, where the highest form of wealth is to be together with the life of our planet, to wake in a clean and abundant world at dawn, face east, and sing. Heishka. That was beautiful, Rena. Thank you so very much. Um, for those of you who would like to see these essays in writing, uh, the full download of Seismic is available on the Seattle City of Literature uh, website, and Rena's essay was published in Seattle Met. Jordan Amani Keith, the City of Seattle's 2019 to 2021 civic poet, Jordan Amani Keith wrote a TED Talk called Your Body of Water, which was the theme for King County's Poetry on Buses program and for which she won an American for the Arts Award. Two of Keith's Orion Magazine essays, which were selected for the Best American Science and Nature Writing Anthology, will also be featured in Tugging at the Web, her memoir and essays, which we are eagerly awaiting from University of Washington Press. Please welcome Jordan Imani Keith to the stage. Thank you. Thank you. I'm very honored to follow and be a part of uh, 
that that this reading. I kind of lost my breath literally. Okay. One, I create myself, breathe lavender breath to escape the cage of my skin. I wrote this line before I knew I would walk through a city called Seattle, before I knew I would step over squares of lavender light in its sidewalk. For years, I ignored them, squares cut into concrete to let the sun reach the underground to let the sun into what remained after the fire. Perhaps my poem was prophecy, perhaps it was ghost, holy and waiting for me. If you're quiet enough, you can hear the past and future here in Seattle. Do you hear the longhouse stories told by the people of the lake before we came? All the we that is not them, that is not the Wamish. We are walking on Lushitzied words, like the early grass, like the rattle of the camas flower dried in the wind. We walk on a city that was, and is, and will be. Any city that comes through fire has its own holiness. Any city that walks on water carries cathedrals inside. Are we the most unchurched city, the city of literature? Jesus Christ made Seattle under protest. That is what I was told when I moved here and lost my way. It is a mnemonic for the pairing of downtown streets, Jefferson and James, Cherry and Columbia, Marion and Madison, Seneca and Spring, Union and University, Pike and Pine. Memorize it, a stranger told me when I asked for directions. No one is from here. No one knows where things are. Below our feet, whether we know it or not, every Seattle writer, every Seattle reader walks on stories. We walk on mountains pushed into the sea. Seattle, unchurched? Doesn't every place have a spirit? Literature is a cathedral. Cathedral, the Latin word, is seat. Literature is a seat on Broadway, on Capitol Hill. August Wilson sat at the Broadway grill, wrote plays on the backs of flyers, and at Bino Espresso, he lingered. Was he there when it felt like I was in a version of Parish that I could afford? Did you see him? When he moved here, was Seattle still second in the nation for theaters, for playwrights, right behind New York? Literature is a seat. At Cafe Sieptem, with its red walls and white butcher paper tabletops stained with ideas and circles of coffee marks, the biscuits and mimosas were sacraments before conversations that were first drafts of poems and love affairs. Stories sashayed by, pretending to be villanelles or stopped to peck your cheek and be gone like haiku written in the Panama Hotel. Yes, it is the hotel on the corner of bitter and sweet. Literature is a seat the one left behind when you're rounded up and interned. It is a historic landmark 
It is a cathedral. It is a brothel after the fire. Literature is an alley, a car rusted in an open field. It is a triggering town. Literature is a rebellion. It is tear gas. It is a madrona tree peeling. Literature is a forest. It is a ripple through deep, dark brown bark. It is a pierced tongue. It is green hair. Literature, it is a triple shot espresso. And it is a seat, a seat, a seat, a cathedral of scented words like lavender squares just above something that was always there and has never been there before. Literature is a dropped call along the rise of Columbian Way from Rainier Avenue. It is the mountain, her snowy skirt pretending not to hide fire. Literature is ashes near the playset. It is an unopened umbrella in the rain. For a soul that dangles off the edge of the continent, from the porch of Hugo House, an old wooden building that we knew was haunted. I mean, why wouldn't it be? It was a funeral parlor. We all said that there was a baby's coffin above the stairwell to the basement. There was an archive in that raw, cool room underground. It held every word somebody didn't want to wait to hear was valid. The zine library was as revolutionary as the second battle in Seattle when tear gas clouded the fields of Cal Anderson Park. The police in riot gear pushing the WTO protesters up Broadway on Capitol Hill and to where the KFC was. From that porch at the edge of the continent, men who stayed sober so they could come inside and sit at the library in Hugo House looked out for you until nightfall. Then they crawled into bottles and porch talk before sleeping bags. Well, it doesn't matter, right? They are cathedrals. Hugo House lived up in subtle ways to its reputation as being haunted. From the top step of the porch, if I paused long enough on my way in, on my way out, I could see the coming ghosts of bookstores disappearing. I could see the coming ghosts and like the streets of downtown, they're still there lights underground, coming ghosts of bookstores disappearing, the replacement of home-style cafes where you barely felt like you had left the house and someone ran into, and somehow ran into everyone you knew. I could see the coming ghosts. Should I tell you about the literary ground we walk on like lavender glass squares cut into the sidewalk? A whole city of literature underground. You'll have to take a tour, look for the headstones of red and black books, Bailey Coy books, M. Coy books, the bigger version of twice sold tales with cats and books. On the bookcase next to my writing chair is a coaster I've been carrying around since I was a teenager. It depicts Basilica St. Anne de Beaupere, a cathedral in Quebec. Twin spires, the Romanesque entries of three large doors say holy words are spoken here. 
I come from Philadelphia, a city defined by cobblestones and connections to our country's history, colonial pantheons. I have often looked at Seattle and bemoaned the lack of distinguishing architecture with the exception of the Space Needle, some would say Smith Tower. Literature is a cathedral. A cathedral is a seat. Here sits the spirit of revolution in red and black books on 15th, across from where the Rite Aid is now. Here sits the spirit of Dorothy Allison unfolding as we sat in folding chairs at Bailey Coit Books on Broadway, where we floated after writing napkin poems at brunch or paused at the A-frame sign with a literary who wrote it and the promise of a book discount if you knew. Seattle is not a place of stone cathedrals. We are not noted for our ancient hallows, but there is something sanctified about Seattle. It is the house for words and words as former Washington poet laureate Elizabeth Austin says with the title of her work, words are skin prayers. Here we are the stories made flesh. Thank you. I'm so grateful for your service as civic poet, Jordan. And for those of you who would like to uh, see that work, you can look at the uh, chat box and see there is a link for the free download of Seismic. Uh, Jordan's essay was also published on KUOW.org. Matilda Bernstein Sycamore is the award-winning author of three novels and a memoir, and the editor of five nonfiction anthologies. Her next book, The Freezer Door, which I assure you having read is something you do need to see, takes place almost entirely in Seattle and will be out in November. Please welcome her to the stage. I moved to Seattle in 2012, a year before the publication of my memoir, The End of San Francisco, and people would ask, are you gonna write The End of Seattle next? I would laugh. I had lived in Seattle two times before. The first was for a month in 94 when I was 20 and I carried the courage to heal around like it might save me. Joanne and I shared a bed for a month and it never felt crowded. When something like this happens to you in a non-sexual way, you know it will last forever. Soon enough, Joanne moved to San Francisco to live with me. And even if I tell you she died only a year later, this doesn't mean we didn't have a life together. It just means it ended way too soon. After the hospital refused to care for her because she was a junkie. The first time I ever felt relaxed was in Seattle, sharing anger like a hug. And when I came back for a little over a year in 96 and 97, I felt that calm too, but it was too calm. So I moved to New York. And when I moved back to Seattle in 2012, it felt like it hadn't changed nearly as much as any of the other cities I knew, and that's why I laughed. Seattle to me has always been a middle-class town, and even if this is everything I hate about it, it might also be part of what has made it feel calm. Six years ago, I may have laughed when people asked me if I was writing the end of Seattle, but there is no question that we are living it now. 
Seattle is now a city of displacement and desperation, where rent has basically doubled in seven years, and we have no meaningful protections, where even people against gentrification say, of course, they support increasing the density. But what kind of density are they supporting? A density of overpriced crap, a density of bland homogenization a density of corporate exploitation masquerading as necessary growth. Everyone talks about the need for affordable housing while the city shuts down the largest public housing project, displacing hundreds of families and destroying the country's first mixed race housing project to make way for a billionaire to build luxury apartments. How did they do this? By changing the zoning, to increase the density. When developers control the language, everyone else loses. Affordable housing for middle-class people becomes a priority instead of low-income housing for poor people. Increasing the density of corporate profit becomes the rule instead of expanding the possibilities for public housing and communal care. If the tax zillionaires that run this city would just be forced to contribute a tiny portion more of their earnings to city services, we could easily have free public transportation and housing for everyone. Instead, Metro ends the ride-free area due to a funding shortage after a tax repeal, and homelessness and housing instability soar to record highs. If this isn't dystopia, I don't know what is. I go on walks, mostly around Capitol Hill, where I live, but also to other neighborhoods. Once a week, I have an appointment in Eastlake, so I walk down the hill and over on Lakeview, where I see the backsides of everything. For several years, I would pass a muddy area with overgrown weeds on a small cliff between Lakeview and the ditch next to the highway. And in that little patch of land, there were people creating a home. Some of them were living in tents. Some were sleeping in piles of belongings exposed to the rain. Maybe the luckier ones were in campers nearby. It was a culture of drugs and desperation, but it was a culture. I always feel a kinship with anyone struggling desperately to get by. And so even though I was not a part of this culture, I felt something like hope when I walked past. Hope that this city could still be a place where people on the fringe can survive. Isn't this why we come to cities? So sometimes this was my favorite part of the walk, just seeing people and saying hi. Then one day I walked by and there were giant tractors tearing everything up. At first I felt a panic because what if people were still sleeping in the grass like they usually were? But then I just felt incredible anger, like I wanted to push the tractors over the cliff. And then, of course, this feeling faded into the usual helplessness. Once the rage would have lasted longer, but that was before 20 years of debilitating chronic health problems that brought me back to the city where I first found calm. But here so often, it feels like the middle class imagination has conquered everything. And even if this doesn't include my dreams, it means I rarely feel connected to something larger than loss. 
Now there are nine gray row houses overlooking the ditch next to the highway. Each one sold for $895,000. Most of them look as bland as before they were inhabited, but one has a cute little metal table outside with chairs and pots of chrysanthemums. One time I saw the guy who lives there and I waved, but he didn't wave back. Still, I have a fantasy that'll invite me in. We'll cuddle in bed and I'll tell him about the people who used to live where he lives now. And maybe he'll agree with me about the injustice, even though he's part of it. Even though all of us are part of it, especially those of us with the privilege to live in a place that won't be taken away. When I hear the phrase that Seattle is a great literary city, I want to scream. Because when people praise what Seattle is now, it feels like they're praising displacement, homogenization, the streamlining of the imagination to become a tool of social, cultural, and political obliteration. I don't believe that literature is automatically a force for good, especially if it participates in the self-congratulatory boosterism that celebrates Seattle as it is now. If we cannot critique what we love, then we don't really love it. If this is a great literary city, how do we expose all the layers of violence so we can imagine something else? How do we write what we really feel so we can feel what we really need? How do we use language to expose hypocrisy rather than camouflaging harm? I want to live in a city that doesn't destroy the lives of the people who are already the most marginalized by systemic and systematic injustice. This may be too much to ask of literature, but it's not too much to ask. Thank you. Thank you so much, Matilda. Um, ever since I read uh, a conversation that she had in Moss Literary Review about gentrification, I knew that her voice needed to be part of this collection. And I highly recommend that you not only read The Freezer Door, but also Sketch to See, which NPR named the best book of the year. Duji Tahat is the author of two chapbooks, Here I Am, Oh My God, and Salat, and co-hosts the Poet Salon podcast. Please welcome them to the stage. everyone um and thank you kristen uh for inviting me to contribute uh for believing in this idea and for everybody who's read so far um this feels like a really necessary salve and what's shaping up to be a long and difficult week my essay begins with uh, an epigraph from audrey lord's essay poetry is not a luxury the quality of light by which we scrutinize our lives has direct bearing upon the product which we live and upon the changes which we hope to bring about through those lives I walk around Seattle looking at houses I'll never own. I imagine one full of 20-somethings who work at nonprofits and couldn't afford living in the city if they didn't have four roommates. Next to them is a retired couple on fixed incomes who pay a greater share of their earnings and taxes than their neighbors across the street whose parents helped with their down payment. In that house, they signal their politics with an omnibus liberal yard sign. Love is love is love. Black lives matter. Women's rights are human rights. In Seattle politics, we rely on symbols as a proxy for action. Perhaps it's the only way to build a progressive utopia. We love being the future. 
Our contemporary cultural and political discourse has been propelled by the forward-facing engines of industry and colonialism. Expeditions, timber, the gold rush, the space needle, Boeing, Amazon. Our city's narrative is defined with moments of achieving new heights, staring down the unknown, embodying the tip of the spear, innovation and disruption. It is praiseworthy for Seattle to be recognized as a UNESCO city of literature, an important and vital achievement that recognizes the hard work of countless artists that made this city what it is. We belong in yet a new way to a global community. This is good because the world is in a dire place and we need more reasons to come together. It represents an opportunity for Seattle to partner and learn from our sister cities how best to employ literature and this designation to improve the material lives of those at the margins. As far as I understand literature to have a purpose, it is meant to reflect back to us our fullest selves, to speak truth to power, and to be a site for greater individual and communal reimagining. If we don't take this task seriously, the honor serves simply as a laurel hung from the drawing room walls of those of us living in safe material comfort. Seattle is experiencing unprecedented transformation with profound implications for this future. Yet in the strict confines of high art and cultural discourse, many institutions remain unwilling to reckon with the ways culture is displaced from the city. It cannot be because cultural institutions are apolitical, not only because there's no such thing, but because many of these organizations willingly come together to fund electoral campaigns when what is on the ballot are public subsidies. What becomes clear is that it is not the city's culture being curated, but rather institutional balance sheets. The hypocrisy is starkest when cultural institutions display black and brown art, but not the artist. And if they do champion and claim black and brown artists as worthy of their space and acclaim, they hardly extend the same level of commitment and support to the communities those artists come from. No amount of rationalizing can explain the discrepancy between racially diverse public roles like fellowships and artists in residence at those same institutions with staff and board positions held almost exclusively by white people. Start by hiring more black, indigenous, and other people of color who come from historically BIPOC neighborhoods. Then increase funding and programming that serve young and vulnerable people in those communities, taking on a more explicit role in the political machinations that determine the quality of life for so many Seattleites. Now that is the radical work of culture. Inevitably, some will question how we pay for it and what resources can we devote, which leads to an existential difficult conversation about the current model of arts institutions. Philanthropy, which is the predominant model of literary and cultural organizations in our city, is failing us. If one builds an organization centering wealthy white landowners, then that is the culture being curated. If we cannot find a way to pull from the margins, our city's art and literature will suffer and become watered-down cultural products that prop up the settler colonial capitalist project, which pays some well and costs most others their lives. To break the cycle, we have to re-envision the role and mission of arts and literary institutions in our city. Instead of building business models around those with money to meet annual development goals, what does an art institution look like that owes the communities that make the most vital artists making the most vital art? What does it mean for the institution to take an active role in reimagining its place in not just culture, but our city's economy? And are those same institutions and their leaders ready to cede power in the name of art and culture? A different kind of literary institution means reinterpreting what a core mission, vision, and values mean when cast upon a wider field. Many arts institutions today are, quote-unquote, committed to racial equity, 
but don't have the courage to take a position on upzoning, land use policy, ending the sweeps of homeless encampments, or invest, divesting from the police. In this era, the arts are an active practice. Housing, human services, the role of government, these are the defining fights of our time and will shape the future of our city. Washington State has the most inequitable tax code in America. Seattle is home to two of the richest people on the planet, along with a dozen other billionaires, while over 11,000 people live unsheltered in the streets of our county. Tens of thousands more are on the brink of losing their housing, and yes, BIPOC are disproportionately represented here at alarming rates. These everyday facts of life are not ancillary to culture, but the very stuff that comprise it. If institutions really mean what they say about their commitments to racial equity, none can sit idly by. Seattle has a long tradition of arts organizing deeply rooted in community. Arts groups like Creative Justice, The Vera Project, Langston Hughes Performing Arts Institute, Youngstown Cultural Arts Center, and Youth Speak Seattle, of which I am an alum, have been leading the way. They represent an orientation to literature, art, and culture that is more akin to culture workers around the globe. They envision artists as leaders who not only engage and shape communal discourse, but practice the values their arts convey. They each, in their own way, provide education and childcare services. They advocate in politics and government for systemic changes that serve community. They work on prevention as well as remediation of individual and communal problems. And they're committed to improving the overall quality of life of everyone who comes through their doors. These organizations do not make good business sense or even philanthropy sense. However, they are saving lives, mine included. If we can bring together the scale of funding and influence that large-scale institutions have with the community-based orientation and practice these arts organizations provide, we may yet live to see everyone in this city flourish. I love Seattle and often turn to its literary scene as reprieve from a politics that dehumanizes those suffering the most. If literature and art are an effective antidote, we must attend to how so many artists have been pushed out of Seattle as the city's economy soars. My family still might be. When our art spaces refuse to acknowledge or address this ever-growing loss, they become complicit in the marginalization of the very culture these spaces claim to cultivate. What's rendered invisible is not just the brilliant literature produced by a talented individual, but the whole community that made that individual possible in the first place. And because of the way our economy is structured, our immigrant, BIPOC, queer, and trans communities bear the brunt of our collective inaction. Of course, art cannot feed, clothe, or house our neighbors, but it can and does improve the quality of our lives, which has a direct bearing on the kinds of change we wish to enact while living among each other. What if arts instructors devoted themselves to the same task? What if we live the values of the art we make and champion? What a radically welcoming city we might become. We need more activist politics in our arts institutions. We need leaders willing to risk their power, those with the courage to align themselves with people and principles. Now is the time for such ambition. If there's hope to be found in our city, it is how we come together hopefully led by our literary institutions to be the bulwarks our people deserve. Thank you. I first heard those ideas uh, in person and 
when I was asked to curate this collection, I knew that they needed to be part of this uh, seismic reckoning. Uh, you can read Duji's essay, which I hope that you will pass around to your friends uh, now in seismic and coming up next uh, month in October in Literary Hub. Now, Duji's words, the arts are an active practice, bring to mind our next artist, Anastasia Renee, someone who has dedicated her life to serving the community, to lifting others up, while making so many books, she no longer lists them in all of her bio. So, she's a multi-genre writer, interdisciplinary artist, and podcaster. She's a 2020 ARC Fellow from Four Culture, the 2020 Jack Straw Curator, and author of V from Black Ocean Press. Her poetry, fiction, and nonfiction have been published widely and deservedly so. Please welcome Anastasia to the stage. Thank you. I woke up on a chilly Sunday morning in our apartment across the street from where Kingfish Catfish used to be and felt as if I were nudged or pushed energetically prompted to serenade myself with Nina Simone's to be young, gifted, and black, and I did. I played the song and belted it from my gut, and just as I arrived at the part of the song where I usually shut my eyes to feel the song so deeply, young, gifted, and black, we must begin to tell our young. My eyes rested upon Audrey Lord's I Am Your Sister. I have moved around numerous times in this black body and as a mother, Kansas City, San Diego, Japan. And for that reason, I find it challenging to feel anchored to any particular place. But no matter where I've made my home, four things have tethered and centered me. One, parenting. Two, remembering the power of my lineage. Three, reading and four, writing. Because Seattle, more than any of the other places I have lived, has a more robust literary community, I have been able to see aspects of myself in organizations like Langston Hughes Performing Arts Institute and Northwest African American Museum. I have planted myself and grown and opened up spaces for others to grow and flourish in organizations like Hugo House and Jack Straw. When I grab a copy of I Am Your Sister from my bookshelf and head to a local restaurant on my street, one that's now been replaced by a Seattle staple, I am greeted via body language by a family of tourists who can't seem to keep their eyes off me and the book. The body language appears subtle, short glances up and down, whispering under the breath and stopping to stare at me on the way to the restroom. I say to Audrey Lord, yes, I talk to her often. What do you want me to receive from today's sermon? And she says, as I pick a random page from the book and stick my index finger on a paragraph, quote, when I say I am a black feminist, I mean I recognize that my power as well as my primary oppressions come as a result of my blackness as well as my womanness and therefore my struggles on both of these fronts are inseparable, end of quote. The tourist family continues to stare at me and by now 
I assume they will make small talk and say what many visitors have said by asking me where I'm visiting from or where can I get some authentic soul food as if I work at a restaurant. Something about this family was different. I let my intuition lead me back to the Lord. In my bag, I also had a copy of Zammy and Sister Love, the letters of Audre Lorde and Pat Parker, 1974 to 1989. These three books have served as literary sanctuaries for me. Though I am definitely in my reading and writing zone, I feel I'm in my happy place, also known as Lord Hayes. It'll soon be interrupted, and it is. The touristy family members walk over to my table in matching sweatshirts. Five smiles are exchanged and there is a pause. I cannot tell if the awkward silence comes from me or from them. I chastise myself for assigning them a name, but this is what writers do. After the pause, we all begin to speak at once. They say four variations of hello, and I simply say hi, with a half smile and hugging all three books to my chest. I find myself waiting, almost counting the seconds to guess how long it will take for the questions I am used to being asked in my neighborhood. But one of the family members practically leaps out of their sweatshirt and says to me, I just couldn't help notice that you are reading Audre Lorde and her work changed my life. I mean, my whole perspective. I mean, she is by far one of the most influential authors and essayists of all time. I was so stunned by what the family member said that all I could do was smile hard and nod profusely as they followed up with, you're not the first person I have seen posted up somewhere reading or writing. Seattle must be the right place for that. Long after leaving the restaurant, and in fact for weeks, I thought about this exchange. Not because it ended differently than what I've been conditioned to expect, but because the family member was right. And the quote that Audre Lorde guided me to was also right. And in this way, we are brought together. My literary roots have grown in Seattle and I feel fortunate to be planted in a place that values writers, values literature, values libraries, values bookstores, and is not only rich in its literary history, but in its current roster of writers. But if I could make a wish upon a book or ask the Lord Audrey for a blessing for this city, it would be to add more platforms, avenues, megaphones, and bridges for voices who live between the lines, in white spaces, and in the margins. I feel hope for the direction of, that Seattle is moving. And we are remembering that without community, there is no liberation, says Audrey. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, Anastasia is one of the reasons that we have such a fully developed literary roster in the city. She's an excellent educator, a workshopper, um, someone who welcomed me before I knew that I had arrived. 
Uh, she has a way of seeing other people that is beautiful. So Weiwei Lee was a 2019-2020 Youth Poet Laureate of Seattle. She was born in the States, but grew up in Taiwan and has only been stateside for four years. In her work, she hopes to pay tribute to both countries and do them proud. Please welcome her to the stage. There is an East Asian tradition my parents performed for us, me and my sisters, when we were very little. The word in Mandarin is drajo, and there's no good translation for it, other than one suggestion I scraped from the internet, drawing lot. The tradition goes thus. When the new baby is about a year old, a small ceremony is held where the baby is surrounded with representative objects, and whichever the baby grabs is indicative of who they'll grow up to be. As lovingly and cheerfully recounted by my parents at just about every family gathering, my eldest sister went for a stethoscope and book, indicative of academia, of future medicine. My second sister grabbed a book and pen, indicative of academia, creativity, artistry. I crawled for an empty thousand dollar bill and turned right around to give it to my mother. And this is the story they love telling the most. Indicative of life of fortune and plenty. Something in business, perhaps. It's a career that would bring wealth. There is a reason I found drawing lots a uh, fair translation. We were drawing our lot in life, or so the question goes. Of course, it's just a household ritual, and people know not to put too much faith in it. But there is a reason my parents still tell the story, and it isn't just because it's funny. I was raised in an East Asian household, the product of two generations of hard work, sacrifice, and academic excellence, in an Asiatic region that put a lot of focus on academia. My lot in life was to be something tremendous, a doctor or a lawyer, a dentist, professor, or a diplomat. Those were my parents' dreams for me. They told me I could be anything as long as I put food on the table. I could study anything provided I could get a job afterwards. Most everything had to have an outcome to it, a reward. Otherwise, what was the point? What was the point of learning piano if I couldn't show off my skills to other people relative to children my age? What was the point of being good at English if I didn't put it to good use by going to competition? What was the point of being born if I didn't know due diligence? The lessons of success clawed from the dirt and passed on parent to child can fall into the realm of brutal efficiency. I've loved writing since I was a child, have been writing since my stories found their way onto paper and into computers. My parents saw no reason to discourage this pastime as long as it came second to my studies. Of course, it came with a tagline that it wasn't anything I should really pursue unless it proved to be a lucrative option. Again, efficiency. Why expend time and effort on something that wasn't going to keep me alive? I have known since I started writing that until I managed to publish a bestseller or two, this would be nothing more than a mere hobby. Poetry, however, has been a different beast altogether. For one, it was fostered here in Seattle, encouraged in the loving arms of writing groups and workshops. 
For another, I was writing only for myself. I only wanted to capture raw feelings, persistent phrases that wrestled around my head and demanded to be heard. I had no limitations, no expectations, no goals in mind. Neither, in fact, was my parents. I didn't tell them I read a banner until after the fact. And I didn't even tell them I'd entered the youth poet laureate contest until I was home for reading alongside a finalist at Northwest Folk Fest. It was something just for the two of us between me and the city of Seattle. I grew up in Taiwan and I've done some going here in Seattle. Taiwan will always be my motherland. It's the setting for all my memories, the foundation of who I am. It gave me discipline, identity, and a story. But Taiwan tends to foster creativity for display, like something only to be lauded and put up in gleaming glass cases, and I am older than the girl who entered competitions just because it was, would be, an honor. Seattle has given me freedom. It has offered me luxury of writing for the sake of feeling, without expectation or the pressures of succeeding. With my friends, my classmates, my school writers club, with the YPL cohort, we trade our written stories across the table and listen spellbound. We read our poems aloud and sink into the words with a warm bath. We paint to provoke feeling. We speak and the words resonate. We create because it is in our nature, manifesting in our poetry slams, art galleries, and coffee shop concerts, from murals and soto to the painted array of electrical boxes in the city. We create no matter who we are. What it means to me to be here in the city is to be where creativity is so cared for instead of being sown and grown and harvested until the fields go dry. I never really thought I could be a poet in every sense of the word until I was on stage at Benaroya, although I'd been writing poetry for years. I hadn't thought my poetry could amount to anything. I'd been trying to wrangle my parents' expectations for so long that I didn't realize I had my own expectations to contend with. If you are, as I am, presently here in Seattle, whether you are passing through or staying put, remember that we each have a little magic, and the city brings it out in us. We are capable of creating such things as no one has ever done. We are more than what people want to see, sometimes more than even we ourselves expect to see. We are not bound to the lot we draw. Thank you. Wei Wei, anyone who embarks on the decades with that much courage and clarity will be remembered for a very long time. So thank you so much for sharing your work with us. Um, I wish I had been your uh, compañera de clase when I was in high school. That would have been something. So, Claudia Castro Luna is Washington State's Poet Laureate from 2018 to 2021, Seattle's first civic poet and the recipient of an American Academy of American Poets Fellowship. Her latest publication is a book-length poem, One River, A Thousand Voices. Please welcome Claudia to the stage. Buenas noches a todos. Gracias por unirse esta noche. Kristen, muchas gracias. 
Thank you everyone for joining us this evening. It is a pleasure to be here and a huge honor to be um, invited to collaborate in this anthology. It's amazing to hear all of your voices tonight. Um, and I can't wait to hold the book myself in my hand. My essay begins with a, a quick overview of what life was like, what life was like before COVID, so I'm forewarning you. Um, Seattle takes words seriously. On any given day, libraries, bookstores, schools, literary nonprofits, and cafes host readings, slams, open mics, and writing workshops. Poems feature inside buses. At first glance, this bustling activity fits the image of a world-class literary city. Yet, at a recent reading, with almost 800 in attendance, I again noticed that people of color were largely absent. Seattle has public, private, and nonprofit programs that teach writing, promote literary engagement, and fuel communities of thought. Unfortunately, there are far fewer opportunities for writers of color, many of whom speak languages other than English. The, the evening I describe was representative of both the caliber of literary programming available and the city's racial and economic divide. A third of us are people of color and our numbers bulk up the city's lower socioeconomic strata. Black residents, for instance, earn less than half the income paid to their white counterparts. In this sense, I view the creative city designation not as an arrival, but as a portal to discover new ways to engage many more residents in the literary life of the city. What is at stake for Seattle is not guarding a literary legacy, but envisioning one. Seattle could have the makings of a literary renaissance that inspires cities across the world to reframe what constitutes literature and who has a right to create it. The evening in question displayed the distance between the prevailing progressive notion of ourselves as multiracial, multicultural, dynamic, and the reality on the ground. The divide is evident, not only in the geographic spread of our neighborhoods, but also in who is present and who absent from uh, cultural programming. It begs the question, literary programs for whom and by whom? Not only what types of stories are important, but who tells them, who benefits from them, and what they chronicle about our city. As the first civic poet and as Washington State's Poet Laureate, I've had the privilege to share literary spaces in all corners of the city. Students in Seattle Public Schools and the greater metropolitan area speak 130 different languages. I have witnessed extraordinary immigrant youth share powerful accounts of their exodus from difficult, from difficult places around the world to Seattle. Through stories and poems of courage and resilience, youth make sense of themselves and forge deep personal connections with each other. As much as Seattle is a literary beacon to the world, the world lives and breathes in Seattle. At a recent event, a Somali gentleman 
told me a story from his childhood about a flying lion, not an imaginary one, but a real animal who in pursuit of village goats penned for the night, leapt over him and his young cousin as they counted stars in silence outside their home in the countryside. Another time at a senior center, a grandfather folded into himself in a chair slowly straightened as he recounted life in the Bolivian Antiplano. The aching vastness of the Andean landscape manifested before our eyes as he spoke with simple beauty of planting and harvesting potatoes in quinoa with his daughter. Riding in a lift, remember those? My companion referenced Vis and Ramin, the 11th century Persian love story. Our driver could not resist chiming in. She knew the tale. Her husband, she said, could recite entire sections by heart. Good stories, heralding creative engagement with the world through words, emerge everywhere, regardless of location or income. In comparison to to sister UNESCO cities, Seattle may appear to have a recent literary footprint, but for 10,000 years, coastal Salish peoples have thrived along these steely waters. To them belongs a rich, nuanced, and extensive catalog of tales and stories passed down orally for generations. The literary traditions of First Peoples and many of the stories our newest residents and many of the stories from our few, from our newest residents hinge on the orality, not on the written word. Participation in literary creation can be a catalyst for civic engagement. The right to story is particularly important in our rapidly changing city with its widening income divide, ever rising cost of housing, and everyday displacement of communities of color. The tech sector favors a younger, wealthier population. Whose narrative will we inhabit? Whose stories? Will, will be told, and who will get to convey our history to future generations. Seattle can indeed be creative by fostering more spaces and events grounded in the diversity of experience, languages, and traditions in our mists, validating orality, centering traditions of First Peoples, and expanding our excellent programs to our newest residents could narrow the gap between who we are and who we imagine ourselves to be. Thank you. Thank you, Claudia. James Baldwin also exhorts us to close the gap, to reconcile the differences between who we are and who we wanted to be, And so I'm so grateful that as our penultimate performer, Claudia reminds us that this is a time, a portal into a future that we have not yet fully imagined, but which we are reimagining tonight. I wish that you could hear some of the comments that people are leaving. Uh, This is all so beautiful, full of power and love and difficulty. Thank you for your gift of your words and minds and hearts from Marv Arnold, um, the events curator at Hugo House, Uh, a patron named Katie saying, I wish you amazing authors could hear our applause. We have one more performer before we get to the Q&A tonight, and I would like to say that anyone who wishes to ask a question, please go ahead and drop it into the comments via Facebook or into the uh, chat box here. 
But talking about hinging on orality, um, I was at a screening of The Promised Land, a documentary that is about the Duwamish tribe's fight for federal recognition long overdue. And at that screening, which took place at the Rainier Arts Center in Columbia City, I heard a story uh, told by Ken Workman. Now, Ken Workman is the great, 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 great grandson of Chief Seattle. He is a retired systems and data analyst from Boeing's Flight Operations Engineering Department. And he is a former Duwamish Tribal Council member, as well as a former Duwamish Tribal Services 501c3 president. Ken is a member of the Duwamish Tribe, the first people of Seattle and a current board member of two nonprofits, the Duwamish River Cleanup Coalition and the Southwest Seattle Historical Society. It seems that some of us are tasked with carrying forward quite a few efforts and stories until the rest catch up. And so for our closing performer, I hope that you will, with your warmest welcome, bring him into the stage, Ken Workman. Thank you, Kristen. I will speak and I will tell you what I know some people call them stories, but it's just the truth. That sounds like a story. I was born across the street from Seacrest Park on the west side of Elliott Bay and imprinted upon that beach with its smells and its sounds and raised on the edge of Puget Park where my brother and I played in the woods all day amongst the trees and the cliffs and the creek and the crawdads and the raccoon. Little did we know that we were playing only a half a mile away from the last longhouse in Seattle, Herring House, Tulatu. And so this story, this story is the same story that everybody once knew. A long time ago, everybody knew the story and that it was the truth. And the story starts in 1954, just before the signing of the Point Elliot Treaty of, uh, the story starts in 1854, uh, just before the signing of the Point Elliot Treaty of 1855, where Chief Seattle, my great-great-great-great-grandfather, approaches then-Governor Isaac Stevens, and he says, I will take this thing, this holostop, this piece of paper thing, and let you know what our people think. But we require unencumbered access to our burial grounds. This is the very first thing he said. We require this. And then he said, you abandon your dead and you think they're powerless, but they're not. They're not entirely powerless. And how the ground was more loving to our feet than it is to yours. He said, the hills and the valleys, they resonate. And even the rocks resonate with the memories of my people. And finally, he said, when the streets are empty and the lights are out, they will throng with the ghosts of my people. So when you take everything that he said and you view it through the lens of modern science, you realize what he was talking about was the cycle of life. And so when he said, you think the, the dead are powerless, but they're not, we would take our people as they had passed, grandma and grandpa and auntie and uncle, we would take them to these places. Uh, it's called cemetery today, 
Cayo Ali is the, the name back then, Corpse Place. And this is where our ancestors would go back down into the ground through natural processes. And then through that process, when the spring rains come, all that stuff that was grandma and grandpa at a molecular level travels back up through the trees. That's described by Professor Susan Samard of uh, University of British Columbia, that there's a relationship, a symbiotic relationship between the fungus in the ground and the roots of the trees. And so you see, when he said the dead aren't entirely powerless, they're not. That's because grandma and grandpa are in the trees, providing us the oxygen that we use to breathe and the wood for our houses and our canoes and our clothes. So when he said, the ground is more loving to our feet than it is to yours, I would ask you to think about the elephants of the Serengeti who communicate over long distance, distances through their feet using ultra-low frequencies. And so we as Duwamish for thousands of years, we just walked around like deer and bear and elk and everything else. And so our feet are in direct contact with the earth. So the cells of our feet are talking to all that stuff that's in the ground, including grandma and grandpas and aunties and uncles and, and the ancient ones. And so when he said the hills and the valleys and even the rocks resonate, with the memories of our people. I would ask you to consider the uh, silicon wafer, the silicon memory chip in computers today. And all you have to do is look at the beaches of Seattle and you'll see lots of granite rocks. And those granite rocks consist in large part of silicon. And so finally, when he said the streets, the empty streets without lights will resonate with our people. For this one, all you have to do is go down to Pioneer Square in Seattle and look in some of those old buildings, look at the framework of those old buildings that were built in 1909 after the Great Fire of 1889. And the framework of those buildings are massive timbers that through a simple trigonomic function, you can calculate the age of those timbers that are in those buildings and in those timbers at the molecular level of the Duwamish people. So everything this man said, this uneducated, supposedly uneducated man said, is absolutely true by modern, modern science. And so we as Duwamish, we're still here. We still live everywhere. We live in the ground. We live underneath the parking lots, underneath the streets. We live underneath the very foundations of your houses. And that's because for... 10,000, 12,000, 14,000 years ever since the ice went away. This is what we've been doing. And so today, the Duwamish are still here. And if the world wanted to rid us of this place, they would have to drink really deep to get the very last bone of the Duwamish people. And so this is what I think Chief Seattle was saying, is that we are the people of the planet. We all are. And he was telling us, take care of these trees. Take care of the, the food, the berries, the grass, because we're all part of the same thing. We're all in it. As Duwamish people, we've been doing this for thousands and thousands of years. And so this is the message. And I'm just a voice. This is not my story. This is what Chief Seattle was saying back in the day. So thank you. 
I've been waiting a long time to hear that story again. So I'm so grateful. And I want all of you to consider the fact, the ongoing nature of the Duwamish tribes fight for federal recognition, that they ceded 54,000 acres of homeland for benefits that have never been accorded. And every Seattleite needs to stand up and support those rights. There is a Duwamish Tribal Council, of course, headed up by Cecil Hansen. Uh, we also have the mechanism of real rent to Duwamish. For those of you who'd like to put your money uh, where your beliefs are, it's possible to pay rent to these people who precede us and will outlast us here, their place. So thank you so much, Ken, for bringing our performance to a close so that we can uh, begin with questions. I have so many questions for all of you. I do want you to know that this is an ongoing conversation. We're joining a conversation that has been sustained for centuries. We are sustaining a conversation that needs to outlast us and continue developing this place beyond when we are here. So when you think about uh, what you're hearing here tonight, these are not these are both immediate actions and they're also long-term beliefs that we need to enact collectively. So I wanted to take a moment to highlight a collective project that one of our contributors has uh, recently made. Uh, Claudia, your book-length poem, One River, A Thousand Voices, uh, is such a beautiful concept and I wanted you to share in that collaborative making and how uh, that book came to be. Yeah, thank you for the question. Um, yeah, the question, the, the, the book comes out of a year-long year project that I started to trace uh, the length of the Columbia River as it enters from where it enters Washington State and follow it all the way to the mouth of the river and engage with communities along who live, have lived um, along the river that... Um, you know, we, we don't hear enough about. And so I started last September, as a matter of fact, um, traveling from Seattle back and back and back again, visiting and sharing and making poetry and listening to stories uh, um, and, all, and reading about the river. Because uh, the Columbia River, when you read about the Columbia River, it's, it's, a, it's an immensely tragic story. Um, so really listening to people and and reading about the river and eventually then this this poem came about which is a book length poem um that is in an accordion form and i am actually having the release for the book next week and i have asked that i have asked columbia river keeper which is one of the biggest nonprofits working to support all life along the river uh human communities as well as um, flora and fauna to accept um, for for the sales of the book to benefit their work because they do excellent work and so in that sense it's a it continues to be a collaborative project because I at the title of the book is one river a thousand voices because it's the Columbia is one of the many names that this river has been called it has been called many names by people for thousands and thousands of years and of course birds and fish uh, in my opinion also have their own names for the river they also have a voiceedness uh, 
to the river and the river itself is a living thing. Um, and so in the poem, I um, examine this idea of rivers, of rivers having personhood, which I think we need to do in order to um, do something about our planet. So in that sense, it's, it's a project that continues to live after, uh, after my river project is done and after I step down as the poet laureate of the state. The idea that we as artists can serve as, uh, in some ways, kind of like that network that Ken was referring to, to bring the nutrition of stories into the canopy, uh, to, to help others connect and collaborate with each other is one that I think is very powerful and um, I hope we'll continue to uh, lead our efforts going forward. Ken, of course, I mentioned a few ways that we as Seattleites might support the Duwamish, but I wanna make sure that if you have um, some other ideas um, born from time and expertise that you have a chance to share them. So can you talk a little bit about how we might support the Duwamish? Um, actually, uh, you've done a, a very good job of that. And so what I ask people to do is just think about where you are on the planet and specifically in the North and even the South Americas, um, go pre-Columbian, because there were people here and then they all got displaced. Uh, thank you, the uh, Trail of Tears. And so we've all been moved off of our land by these new people. And so it's the ancient ones. And by remembering those ancient ones, that collective thought will go out into the world. And so also remember that um, we're part of the trees, we're part of the grass, we're part of everything. And that uh, in the, the world, in its, in its state today on the West Coast, where it's all on fire, I would ask that people take better care of the environment because those are our ancestors that are going up in, in those flames. I do look forward to the day when I may, uh, as Claudia described, count the stars again. And I will do it with reverence and silence. Um, I miss seeing the sky. And I would like to take a moment uh, to honor uh, all that which did not escape the fire. Um, and my thanks to all the frontline workers who are attending uh, to that devastation. Um, you know, one of the things that you talk about frontline workers, um, I want to talk, call out Anastasia Renee because uh, in her workshops uh, about allyship, I consider her to be something of a frontline worker, um, helping to uh, bridge and heal the divides. And so Anastasia, I was wondering in your time as that workshop leader, um, which you are obviously continuing to do, could you talk a little bit about something that people have to get over in themselves in order to become uh, a real ally? Oh, um, I think the biggest thing that people need to get over when we talk about um, allyship is acknowledging that there is an issue, um, acknowledging that one needs to either become an ally or be a more effective ally, and distinguishing the difference between being an ally and a nice person. Um, many of us are nice people, but that does not make you an ally. And I think that I think that is a perfect starting point. Um, realizing just because I hold open doors and I 
say nice things and I, I smile, that, that's not the work of an ally and definitely not the work of a, an effective ally. To my mind, um, anyone who wishes to better their institution uh, should bring this woman in uh, to give a talk. And she does so very well virtually, as you can see. Um, you know, there is this kind of intergenerational wisdom that we are banding about. And so I want to uh, call out to Weiwei. Weiwei, uh, you wrote your essay and shared it with us. You have performed uh, on Benaroya Hall's stage, uh, which is the largest in the city. Um, now that you are kind of in this stage of your life as a poet, um, do you see a different relationship uh, for your, with your family and for your family with literature? Oh, they've certainly been a lot more enthusiastic about it since <laughs> over the course of the year. Uh, I think we're um, adjusting into this little period of them realizing what it means to me and like my relationship with it and like it's still being reconfigured. Uh, but it is nice it is really nice to know that like the family's like that would be one of the do. So yeah, that's honestly that's all I can that's all I can say for for it. it's my my grandmother actually sent a very nice uh, message about when I, when I sent a copy, a few copies of my anthology home, um, she sent me a message telling me that she was proud of me and so was my grandfather. I was like, I, I really respect that from her. It was really nice moment. You know, doing the kind of work of unmaking the structural burdens that we carry, that we've been taught. I mean, I resonated so much with your essay because as an intergenerational Latina, you know, that work hard, you know, stay focused, um, can really sap uh, the joy uh, from a lot of making. So I really appreciated how much joy that all of you brought to uh, the process of contributing these essays to Seismic. You know, this essay collection is free. We wanted it to be freely available to all people. And so you can download that copy. That copy is yours. You can paper, you know, a, a, a phone poll with it. You can email it to your friends. You can upload it to the internet. Um, please share it. That's what we want. We want people to understand that stories are a means of connection and that that connection is person to person and profit has nothing to do with it. Um, I am very grateful for the opportunity to be editor of this collection, which will be in print uh, beginning next week at independent bookstores and libraries. Uh, this evening's performance uh, will also be rebroadcast via Seattle Channel and uh, KUOW Speakers Forum and KVRU out of Rainier Valley. Um, I mean, I'm going to walk to that station, uh, which is pretty great. I love their location and uh, their service to our community. Um, Speaking of service to the community, I am very grateful to the many, many, many people who volunteered their time so that we may come together and make this offering to you tonight. And for those of you who are watching and listening, I want you to know that our words are just the beginning. Your action is the completion of this evening. So think about ways that you may take these ideas into your lives, into your social networks, and begin to contribute through direct action and not inertia to the betterment of Seattle. Seattle Public Library hosted this seismic anthology gathering 
in partnership with Seattle City of Literature on September 15th. To find the full event and other great Seattle area talks, go to our website, KUOW.org, and click on the podcast tab. While you're there, subscribe to our podcast, follow us on social media, and share your comments. Thank you for listening. Tune in again soon. 